Welcome back to a uh, very special episode of Speakeasy Sessions. Uh, it's pretty special today for uh, a few reasons. I will say the first is this is going to be the first time I ever try and probably fail uh, to do this with three other co-hosts. Um, so we'll see if that works. The second is we are actually currently live broadcasting uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks Phillies playoff game. It's game two. Um, and we've got a little bit of a split room here. So um, we have two Diamondbacks fans in Arania and Julia. Go D-backs. And then we have one uh, psychotic Phillies fan in Kate Schaefer. Is there any other type? Yeah. So I, I've already gone through this. We had Danica on for the last like full episode podcast. And I explained to people what it's like to be a Philadelphia sports fan. Um, so Danica embodies that as well. Um, and then we have someone like me, I'm, I'm a little split. I'm probably selfish uh, in what I want. I would like the Diamondbacks to at least win one of the next two games because my in-laws are flying out from Philadelphia uh, on Friday and they're going to the game Friday night, but then they bought us tickets to game five on Saturday. So if the Phillies sweep, then I don't get to go to the game. So Diamondbacks got to win one game. Do you want them to win for any other reason than you want there to be an extra game for you to go to with your in-laws? No, I'm just, it's a completely selfish reasoning. Yeah. So, and I, I, as I've said before, I'm a pretty objective sports fan, so I don't care who wins. Um, just whoever wins, I'm going to make fun of the team that loses and all of their fans. You can't make fun of the D-backs though. I can't. I already did. You um, can't. Yes. Okay. I've already said this. Your name is, come on in. We're talking about the Diamondbacks. We are talking about the Diamondbacks. <laughs> I thought we were talking about the Phillies. No, oh, we're talking sports. about the Diamondbacks. Uh, it is currently 0-0. Zero, zero. Nil, nil. First that bat. Top of the first. Okay. Top of the first. Yeah. Go so. D-backs. Yeah, go D-backs. Yes. Oh, wait, yes. You know, Jesse. Game, at um, in addition to the three co-host session, uh, as well as the game going on, this is a little different of a speakeasy session podcast because I will admit this is probably less about specific procedural aspects of the law and more about a general practice area through a, a terrible but kind of cool story. Um, so what we're going to be talking about is Native American tribal law or Indian law. I think, Julia, you said when we were prepping for this that you wanted to actually like kind of caveat the very beginning of this with one specific thing. I think that throughout the episode, you'll probably hear all of us refer to Native Americans as Indians. Um, and when I first started practicing in Indian law, that made me a little bit uncomfortable when people would be talking about Indians or talking about Indian law, because you're taught growing up that it's Native American, period. Um, so if you hear that throughout the episode, just know that that's because the law for Native Americans is written as Indian. That's how they were referred to in the law and how they're referred to in treaties, acts, executive orders, things like that. Um, so it is federal Indian laws with, I've said it. Um, I'm not sure what you all have heard in the room, but that's, that's normally how it's been referenced when I hear it. Yeah. I, I mean, when I started practicing with you, um, I always felt a little uncomfortable with it, but when you're reading all the, the treaties and the documents and you're citing, you know, the case law, you know, you're, you're not going to bracket the language and put Native American, you, you kind of get used to it. But I definitely 
kind of interchange it as, you know, depending on the context, but yeah. Yep. I agree. I mean, you have the IHS, Indian Health Services. So I agree with Julia. There's still a lot of just names out there that just, that's, that's the way you say it, I guess. Um, but I also interchange. I think I use mostly Native American, but. Okay. So we'll probably, you'll probably hear that said interchangeably throughout, throughout the podcast. And the three individuals that you just heard, although I kind of referenced it before, I'm already a terrible host because I haven't introduced anybody, but we have the last person you heard was Arania Fembrais Ruiz. Did I pronounce that right? You did, yeah. Yes. Uh, I know I know that you've had issues in the past. Yeah, well, yeah, name, with so. Trevor's the easiest name on the planet. <laughs> um, and then we had Kate Schaefer, and then we had Julia Colesrud. And so these are the three uh, ladies in our firm that practice Indian law. And just before we even get on to what we're going to be going over, just generally, if you could, what, how would you explain what Indian law is or, or what your practice area is when you walked into law school? No, actually, actually, I called, I called my first boss at law school. Uh, I called him and I asked him if he needed any help in his immigration work, doing immigration law. And he told me he doesn't do immigration law and, and hung up on me. He was an older guy, so he was just very, very short fuse. And so three or four months later, um, I get a call from him and he asked, I had told him during that original call that I wanted to help people and that if he was doing immigration law, that's what I wanted to do. And he said he doesn't do immigration law and hung up. A few months later, he calls me back and he says, do you still want to help people? And I said, yes. And he's like, well, I've got a group of people that really need some help. And he was representing four or five different tribes at the time in special special matters. Um, and I started working in the area and it's exactly what he promised, which is a group of people that need help. And this is a way that you can help them. That's 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 pretty cool. Kind of um, uh, serendipitous, I guess. Um, imagine if if he called you and asked if you still want to help people. And you just said no and hung back up on him. <laughs> I'm probably, all about the money now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Probably would have been fair to do back then. You, you did the right thing. So, um, and one little thing that I want to add that I don't even think you guys know, but I am actually a quarter Native American. So I am uh, part of the Chickasaw tribe. Really? Out of Oklahoma. Yeah. So my, my grandma was full blood Chickasaw. Yeah. You can't really see it. And again, I've said this is an audio medium, but I don't really look. Native American. Um, I'm pretty white, uh, but um, that's, I got a quarter of that blood running through me. So That's really interesting. You should look into that history. I, I actually should. And after, after reading this, I've probably realized there's a lot of information that I, that I probably have no idea about because I've just, I've just known I was, you know, a quarter Chickasaw, but haven't looked into it really at all. Now I can't really ask my grandma. She, she passed away and then when she was around, she had Alzheimer's. So um, so the, the tribe we're actually going to be talking about today is the Osage tribe. And one of the reasons why I picked this is there's a movie coming out that is directed by Martin Scorsese. That's got like Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, Robert De Niro, and a, a couple other, um, uh, famous actors and actresses that is coming out, I think on Friday, which is like the 20th or 21st. And it's called Killers of the Flower Moon. It's actually about this tribe and about what we're going to talk about uh, in terms of their history. But before we get to that, I wanted to go over a little bit of the history of the tribe um, to make sure we have some background for some important information that's going to come up later. So 
originally uh, the Osage tribe was located in Kansas and we're, we're talking about the late 1800s. And it's important to note here that there's a lot of history prior to what we're going to talk about. They, I don't know all of their history, but probably established land far before the 1800s. But just for purposes of this, we're going to look basically late 1800s into the 1900s going forward. Um, and right around this time, it was after the Civil War and uh, people were starting to expand. And the U.S. government looked at the land that the Osage tribe was on and basically wanted to kind of kick them out. They wanted to take it over for themselves. So rather than just displacing the Osage tribe from one location to the other, which I imagine probably happened a lot, the Osage tribe actually had a pretty good representative uh, in like Washington, D.C. and somebody who was representing them um, in front of the U.S. government. And so they actually ended up selling their land. Now, originally the U.S. government wanted 19 cents per acre but they actually ended up getting a dollar 25 which is uh it cuts even more than like what did we pay russia for alaska wasn't it like 40 cents an acre or something like that it was something ridiculous couple like, yeah super low yeah so they ended up selling their land and with the money that they received from the government they bought land in oklahoma uh it was like 1,470,000 acres um now if any of you know how common was it for a Native American tribe to buy and sell land when they were being moved by the U.S. government? Because I think we probably all know that they have been and are continuing to be moved by the U.S. government here and there. But how common was it for somebody to buy and sell versus just being, I guess, displaced? Not common to buy and sell. Okay. So this yeah. is kind of a unique situation. Yes. Okay. In addition to buying the actual land, they had the foresight to... Um, who just hit a home run? Turner. Oh, okay. So now, so Trey Turner just hit a solo home run. God, they hit so many home runs. I think I put a bet that they were going to have less than a run in the first inning. So I just lost $5. Um, but that's okay. Again, a selfish reason for me watching this game. Uh, when they bought the land, they also bought the mineral rights. Uh, and I think from what I understand of y'all's practice area, mineral rights are probably a very important thing, um, at least in Arizona. Do I have that correct? Yeah. Okay. And you, you're giving me like a, mm, maybe. No, no, no. They, they are. Um, when they bought the land, the mineral rights came with it because it was just underneath the land. It wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with what later came of the mineral rights. Yeah. That I, that's my understanding. Basically, uh, you know, unless you exclude the mineral rights, you just get you know, everything on the land and the subsurface, okay. but you can, I mean, you could negotiate something. I mean, I guess the United States could have tried to be tricky and keep the mineral rights, but they didn't know what they were sitting on. Yeah. I'm, but I mean, I, I think from the research that I did, they made sure that that was included and wasn't excluded, but I, I could be wrong. That, that might've just been faulty research on my part, which that wouldn't be the first time that's happened. So I know that they made a big deal about it in 1906. Okay. Yeah. And that's good. She's, she's good at this. That's a great transition. <laughs> so when they moved, they, you know, in 1906, there, there was something that happened, but I think before we get to that, um, we're going to step back about 20 years to this, uh, thing called the Curtis act and the Dawes act. And so 
1887, Congress passed the Dawes Act, which is also known as the General Allotment Act. And the advantage of being a, uh, a host of this thing is when I don't know anything, I assign it to somebody else who's being a co-host. So I, I asked Kate to look this up and give us a brief explanation of what the Dawes Act is. So <laughs> there's, there's really not a brief explanation to that. I mean, and there's definitely a lot of different commentary on, on what it meant and whether or not it was a humanitarian thing or a, you know, selfish thing. But, um, you know, where we would fall on it is that, you know, the government was always looking for ways to serve their own purposes, um, but always putting a humanitarian, you know, almost parental like spin on it that, you know, they were doing this for the good of, you know, the quote unquote Indians. So the Dawes Act, the General Allotment Act, um, my understanding of it in reviewing it is that um, it was a way to actually get land from, uh, you know, Native Americans because what they did is they took the reservation. They didn't want to deal with trust responsibilities. I mean, there was, you know, there was like, and I think it was, was he a Senator Dawes? Um, I believe so. I think he was a Senator out of like Massachusetts. And there was, you know, this desire, this idea that, you know, the trust responsibilities of the United States government were actually, you know, extremely expensive, that, you know, the government was spending too much money on Native Americans. So there, there was this like idea that they needed to be, you know, self-sufficient and that the, the government was going to stop having these programs and stop, you know, doing things for the benefit of them. Um, and the goal was to, you know, create these allotments, get them to be like the, and again, I need to remember that we're on audio, quote unquote, you know, civilized, you know, um, you know, American neighbors. Um, they wanted to basically whitewash them and, you know, have them assimilate. And so they wanted to have them sell their land and, and get into that chain of commerce. Um, so I don't think it was, it was a beneficial thing. And the General Allotment Act, so they create these allotments and they did restrict them for a period. Um, I think the, I think it was the general allotment act that was restricted for 25 years um, that they could not sell it. But after that time, after that restriction was up, then they could sell the land in fee to, you know, anybody. Um, and the danger of that was that there were, you know, plenty of people who wanted to take advantage of that. Yeah, the, the way that as I was doing some research that somebody explained it is like the concept was the, the U.S. government and obviously all the people that came over from Europe and everything like that were, you know, looked at the, the way the um, Native Americans lived and they're like, that's not that that's not the way you should live. Like, look how we're doing it. Look at like you have the central government and you have everybody has their own house and everybody has their own thing. Like and they were like, we need to push them towards that because that's the better way of doing it. And there was obviously some selfish undertones to that, but, but that's kind of how I understood why they kind of passed this. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. So the movement of putting Indians onto reservations happened like in the 1850s. It was like, that was the big push to, to put them all onto reservations. It only took what, 26 years for the United States to decide that that's not what they wanted to have done for exactly the purposes that you're saying. Um, and so it was to extinguish a reservation and to take away the sovereignty and to take away this idea that they would have their own governments and their own communities 
where they could live the way that they did before. At the same time that you had the Dawes Act happening is when you had all of these kids taken out of the communities and sent to boarding schools mm -hmm. where they were forced to cut their hair and they couldn't speak the language. So they were sort of attacking Native American culture and tradition um, from from multiple sides. The Dawes Act was just one of several other, you know, things that the federal government was doing to try to eradicate like Native American culture. Yeah, and all under the cloak of we're trying to do it for the betterment of everybody when that's not really what the desire and purpose was. And we'll figure that out here in, in a little bit when they basically, you know, turned around and decided to completely change what they decided to do. Same, same as you mentioned, they put them on the reservations in 1850 and then 25 years later, they're like, ah, eh, it's not working out for probably us, us being the U.S. government. So in, <clears throat> in 1906, after some negotiations, um, the U.S. government apparently no longer recognized the Osage as a foreign country because they were on U.S. soil. And so they admitted the Osage as an Indian territory as part of the state of Oklahoma and the land on the Indian territory was divided amongst the tribe pursuant to the allotment. So I don't know how that plays into what you were mentioning. Well, so the Osage were specifically not included in the Dawes Act. And so the 1906 Osage Allotment Act was actually like they, they fought it as much for as long as they could to not have their reservation turned into allotments. And because of the gentleman you were talking about, I'm sure the one in Washington, that's when they were able to say that, fine, we'll do allotments, but the mineral rights underneath the reservation will always belong to the Osage tribe. Okay. See, this is why I bring these people on so they can connect me when I'm <laughs> terribly wrong. Uh, and so in those allotments that you were talking about, those, those were called head rights. No, the, no? The, okay. the, the mineral rights underneath uh, the the payments, the interest, the money that was come from that came from the mineral rights underneath, those were head rights. Okay, got it. And Julia, that's similar to like the per capita payments that we we deal with with tribes, where yep. it's you know based on the number of, of people on the roll and yep. So it's and it's actually real messed up what happened to Osage, and I won't I won't get ahead of it. But when they did have, I think it was like two thousand three hundred something like that, a little bit over two thousand original Osage uh, members on the roll, each of them got one 2,300th or whatever the exact number was. Yeah. Um, so it, it very much was like per capita, um, except for the federal government shut down the rolls. So even the children of people that were enrolled were not considered enrolled members of the Osage tribe. Got it. Okay. Okay, so that's that's starting to make sense based on what we're going to talk about because then that kept the value of the head rights. Kept the value of the head rights. It also kept the control over the the land to a minimum because you could only vote if you were a tribal member. And since oh. the federal government had closed the uh, membership role, they weren't they weren't enrolling any other like blood Osage that came along. Wow, well, that's not very friendly for the Osage. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's basically like negotiating with the adverse party who's supposed to be acting for your benefit. I mean, it's just yeah. like, please help us. But obviously you have this adverse interest against us. Yes. It's very on, hypocritical. Very hypocritical, yeah. which is probably similar to everything else that was probably going on with their relationship with the U.S. government. It's hard for the U.S. government to both police you and also act in your best interest 
while trying to, you know, serve all of the other special interests in the country. Yeah. What we were talking about those head rights. So that, that was the mineral rights. I have that right, right? Head rights were mineral rights. Head rights nope. were the rights to the profits, profits from, from the mineral, from whatever the mineral rights brought. And the reason why those are important is because, um, in like 1887, 1987, no, 1897, if I could read my own handwriting. Well, it's not handwriting, I actually typed these out, but I typed it wrong. So that's why it took me a second to do that. So in 1897, um, oil was discovered on the Osage land and the US government, so like the Department of Interior came in and managed the, the leases for the oil and then paid the Osage as lessors, um, you know, basically their share of whatever oil that was taken um, because it was both their land and both their mineral rights. And, and when we talk about these head rights, there was 657 of these that were given to the Osage tribe. And I think when they, I don't know if this is exactly accurate, but when they, around this time, there was about 5,000 Osage members that were living on um in in this territory um and so uh, you know each head right would receive a pro rata distribution of the oil that the u.s government paid the osage tribe for you know leasing the land and taking the oil which is a, a pretty common concept what ended up actually happening is the amount of oil that was found um, combined with the explosion of the use of crude oil made um, the Osage tribe members, some of the richest people in the United States and maybe even the world at the time. So, you know, first they discover oil and then they start leasing it and they start, you know, shipping it out and all that kind of stuff. So the checks start rolling in. So each person who had a head right would get a hundred dollar check then it turned into a thousand dollar check. Then it turned into a $10,000 check. And the oil was basically, flowing in these, um, you know, tribe members were getting tons and tons of money. So at its peak, just so you have a um, idea of how much they were getting, uh, the U.S. government in 1920 paid the Osage tribe more than $30 million. Um, so that's the equivalent of $460 million today going to uh, 647 people. So if you take each individual head right, that would be a value of $700,000 in today's dollars per year, just going to people solely for letting them lease a bunch of oil. So if I could sit and do nothing and just get $700,000, I would, I, I think I would take that. That would be nice. Yeah. Probably... yeah, I would too. But I feel like it also makes you think how much worth the oil was really worth at the time. If they were giving, you know, Native Americans that much money, you, you already know that they were probably giving way less than, you know, what they should have gotten. Well, yeah, I think <laughs> the, the oil industry, I have no idea what the contracts look like, like what the lease agreement looked like. I also don't know, like, if they really understood how much oil or what the value of oil really was back then. I mean, yeah. you got to think we're going to talk a little bit about, like, how the press became enamored with the Osage tribe because they're the richest people on the planet. Um, there was, like, these rumors that, a couple of them had like a, like a couple of these families had 11 cars and we're talking about like 1920. I only know of one car. It was like the Ford model T <laughs> and maybe the Dodge brothers who stole all their, all their money from Henry Ford, like had the Dodge charger, but there's not like 11 types of, if you had listened to the other, some of the podcasts, I, I talk about that. I talk there was about a Dodge charger in the 1920s. 
No, but the Dodge brothers got their money to start their company from Henry Ford because he was an anti-Semite and tried to cut them out of a bunch of money um, and just lied to everybody about it. So that's how Dodge started. If you want to learn a little more about that, listen to the first shot that I did. Um, if you don't mind hearing me talk alone for 20 minutes. If you do, then just skip it and you can Google it. It's a lot easier. But the the press basically like became obsessed with the Osage tribe. Now, I think one of it is it was a bunch, let's just call a spade a spade. It was a bunch of non-white people who were the wealthiest people in the United States, which is usually hard for white people to uh, accept, especially back in this day and age. It also kind of happened around the same time that the um, Tulsa was like the Black Wall Street that ended up getting completely destroyed with the government's help. And so you just kind of have that concept of um, non-whites who having a lot of power and money, which was not very uh, accepted by the general population. But it also was just this weird thing where these people moved and then they found oil on their land and all of a sudden they just became super wealthy and each and every one of them no matter what, had a certain amount of wealth and they didn't have really anything to do with it. So they just were spending the money like I think any of us would. And the press would go down there. Um, there was a bunch of stories and everybody kind of at the same time in a couple of years learned who the Osage tribe was and uh, that they were basically the richest people in the United States. All right, in addition to the press being enamored with the wealth of the Osage tribe, so was, not surprisingly, the, uh, the US government. Um, so the government basically <laughs> made an excuse that with this new wealth, um, they said or alleged that there was gonna be a bunch of untoward businessmen and fraudsters that were gonna come in um, to the Osage tribe and, and take advantage of them. And they thought that the Osage um, members were not competent or able enough to manage this large amount of money that they all were taking in. And so they wanted to, kind of as we've talked about before, protect them. So what they actually did is they, they passed a law and said that any person who was holding a head right, so the right to the pro rata distribution of the uh, mineral rights and the, the oil money that they were basically getting, anybody who had that head right um, would have to take a competency test. And if they failed that test, then the US government would place a guardian over that individual who would, for lack of a better term for those who understand it, basically be a power of attorney and basically be somebody who would manage their money and hold on to it and basically distribute it however they saw fit notwithstanding what the, the Osage individual who held the head right would want. They also, the federal government also said that anybody who had more than one head right, they would hold that in trust for that Osage member. So it wasn't just the competency tests, but if you had assets that were two head rights or more, they automatically took it from them and put it into trust. And that's obviously because if you had more than one, uh, then that means you had twice as much or three times as much or four times as much money. And if you look at the competency test now, and I'm sure people probably saw it back then too, but um, it was not a fair test. It, it, it wasn't written down. They would basically go into a room, sit these people down and ask them a bunch of questions. 
And from, from the research I did, nearly every single person that took that test failed it. I think there was a couple who passed, but probably not more than, you could probably count the amount of people that passed on one hand. And you're talking about, that's not 657 people because there were a couple who owned more than one head right, but um, you're talking about probably 600, 600 to 650 people who failed it. So I think that's probably um, set up on purpose. I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine that that was just coincidence. Yeah, I was reading an article. Um... And how the, how the head rights were set up is they would revert back to the people who were full-blooded most of the time? Or, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm asking it. If you don't know the answer, that's okay. But... So like if someone, you know you're saying if someone with a head right died? Yeah. They, they could go to, they would be inherited. So they couldn't be sold, but they would go just like, you know, in like probate. Yeah. The way that they, you know, the way that inheritance works for wills and trusts. And okay. Like that. Okay. That's actually going to be important for, um, wow, you are really good at this. You li we're literally going over to the next portion, which is up until now, you're probably like, I don't know how Martin Scorsese is going to take this story uh, and turn it into a movie, although he could. It's the U.S. government taking advantage of um a group of people, but that's not a unique story because that happens all the time. Um, but what ended up happening next was what the Killers of the Flower Moon movie is based off of. And that movie is actually based off of a book that I believe was written in 2017. And the, the story that we're going to talk about next, there was a bunch of other uh, literature that came out, but I think it's been mostly recent. It's one of those things that was... Um, swept under the rug for lack of a better term until probably um you know post 2000 that i never learned about in school um same with the the tulsa massacre and black wall street had no idea um just one of those history parts that was conveniently left out of the textbooks that i had k through 12. i only found out about the tulsa massacre from the watchman yes I saw that and I was like, this can't be real. Is this real? And I started doing some research into it. I could not believe that I'd never heard of it. Never. Yeah. So for those who don't know what we're talking about, there was a, there was a series called Watchmen on HBO um, before it got taken over by Discovery and completely ruined it. But, uh, and the series was post, no, it was pre the Watchmen movie and graphic novel, but it was the same kind of, Seer, um, same kind of theory, which is they would take real life events that happened in the United States and kind of imagined what would happen if superheroes were kind of around at that time. Um, so Watchmen is a graphic novel that became a movie and then they swung it into a series on HBO. And the, you know, the first episode and basically the premise of that is when they, it's Tulsa in 1920s and they go in and they just burn down the town and kill basically all of the African-Americans that were there. And it's, it's brutal, but it's just something that I had no idea about. And I, I did the same thing. I looked it up and I was like, that, I thought they went off of real events. And then I found out it was real, which is not good. Just getting swept under the rug, kind of like the murder of like 10% of the Osage tribe, which is what we're going to talk about now. In 1921, and, and this is, there's a lot of other stories out there that you can follow, but we're going to focus mainly on the one that is the focal point of the, the movie that's coming out. 
1921, there, the body of Anna Brown was found. And this had been a few weeks after she'd gone missing. And when they found her, <laughs> they couldn't, they said they couldn't find out the cause of death. And so they just said she died of alcohol poisoning. Um, and it turns out it wasn't alcohol poisoning. She was shot in the head. Easily confused. Sure. Easily confused between alcohol and poisoning. I'm sure all of us have had experiences where when we woke up the next morning, it felt like we got shot in the head. <laughs> totally different than dying of alcohol poisoning. <laughs> One is a very particular wound. The other is not. How uh, offensive is it that they said she died of alcohol poisoning? Like you couldn't pick any, like anything, yeah. like she fell and hit her head or something. It like was that. the reputation, right? It's going to be easier for people to accept that she died of alcohol poisoning than of anything else. Did Schwarber just hit another home run? Yes. He okay. Did. He looks like he belongs in a beer league softball. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he does. <laughs> like, that's just where he would be happiest is just like Thursday nights in a softball league where it's just like every, every base you touch, you have to drink a beer. Um, but that's just my own personal opinion. Maybe he does that. Maybe that's why he's so good at hitting home runs. Um, probably how insulting is it that we're talking about Anna Brown and then I just, you know, beer league. yeah, beer league softball is the, the tangent. So Anna Brown at the time was di divorced. And so her, she owned a head right and that reverted back to her mother who was Lizzie Brown. A few months later, Anna Brown's cousin, Charles Whitehorn, was found dead with a gunshot wound to a head, a uh, gunshot wound to his head, I should say. Um, so you're kind of seeing a pattern here. Two months later, Lizzie Brown, who was the mother, began mysteriously, um, who fell mysteriously ill and passed away within a matter of a couple weeks or, or months. And at the time she died, she had her head rights, her late husband's, and her two daughters. So she had four. So again, if we go back to modern day value of those head rights was something like 700,000 a year, she was entitled to receive about $2.8 million just from her head rights. That's, that's the value that she had. Um, then in 1923, so this is all like in a two year period, Henry Rowan, who was the cousin of Anna Brown, was found dead in his car from, you guessed it, a gunshot wound to the head. So that's three members of one family um, who died from a gunshot wound to the head. So probably not a coincidence, probably not alcohol poisoning, although they probably tried to pull it off that way. And then a month later, a bomb destroyed the house of Rita Smith, who was Anna Brown's sister. So uh, it killed Rita, her husband, and their servant. Um, and then three months later, an individual named George Bigheart uh, was taken to the hospital and he died of whiskey poisoning. But key to this is before he died, he actually called his attorney to the hospital and told him to look into an individual named William Hale. Now, I may have this wrong, but I believe the Osage like newspaper is actually called the Bigheart Times. Um, and I think it may be because he was the one who tipped off as we'll later learn, like the US government to this whole mass murder that was going on. Um, so you're probably asking yourself, who was this William Hale guy? Well, despite like a bunch of Osage members suspiciously dying, it wasn't until an attorney um, from DC actually went to investigate these murders in 1925. He had heard the stories probably through the grapevine and was like, well, this, you know, 
four gunshot wounds to the head and one family and a bomb going off, probably not a coincidence. So he ended up um, going to check this out and he was found dead on a train in Baltimore on his return trip um, with 20, 20 stab wounds in his back. So somebody definitely wanted him dead. And as we've kind of been mentioning before, he was white. And so all of a sudden the federal government got involved because if a white person dies, not a Native American, then we're going to get interested. Now, once that happened, the Bureau of Investigation, which was the predecessor to the FBI, sent a bunch of people to figure out what was going on. And um, the most prominent investigator was this guy named Tom White. They had to send people down because the local authorities at the time weren't doing anything. Now, what we know from what we'll talk about a little later is that's because everybody was being paid off. All the guardians that were over all the head rights, were receiving all this money, all these murders were planned and coordinated. And so they were buying off the sheriff, they were buying off the lawyers, um, they were buying off everybody involved. And the just so you know, the, the book uh, is called Killers of the Flower Moon. And then I think it's something like the creation or the first case of the FBI. Because at the time, the Bureau of, of Investigation, which was the BOI, had a bunch of old kind of crusty law enforcement people. And around this time in the 1920s, the person put in charge of it was this young guy named J. Edgar Hoover, who then sent a bunch of younger agents to um, figure this out. And it's kind of the first investigative case that the FBI, the modern day FBI actually had, Um, because I think it lasted for about two, two and a half years and it involved a bunch of people going undercover. and not undercover like J. Edgar Hoover liked to go undercover. Although, do you guys know that? I don't know. Sometimes people don't know that J. Edgar Hoover liked to, you know, when he got home after being president and running the FBI, he just threw on a dress and a bunch of fishnet stockings. I didn't know that. You didn't? Know. You didn't know he was a crossdresser? Nope. That was like his favorite thing to do? I didn't know that either. You guys haven't seen that? Oh. Look it up. It's a, it's a, it's a very Wait, there's videos of this. Well, no, it's not videos, <laughs> but, um, like there, an old time. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Somebody rolling a camera. Like the little thing where you actually like rolled it on the side. Kate's going to go on YouTube right after this. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's some very interesting stories about our, our, um, president, Mr. Hoover oh. or, or president Hoover and his, uh, proclivities, um, while he was by himself or, or with other individuals. So. But I'm not here you know, to judge. You know, good for him. I'm not here to judge. It was ahead of his time, right? Ahead of his time. I mean, you're talking to a guy who shaves his legs, so I, I, don't, I can't judge. So, and You're talking to a girl who doesn't shave I know. Mine, like you said when you walked in today, mine are, mine are smoother than yours right now. So it's the only reason the, oh, the Lululemon joggers um, I cannot wear unless I shave my legs like a day or two before because the material grabs and it's so annoying. I have so, to ask Taylor if, if he does that too. Gustafson? Yeah, he's a big fan of Lululemon pants. Is he? Yeah. I haven't noticed. What? Well, they're they're really nice. He wears them to work. I've never seen him. I mean, I wear mine to work, but I wear the joggers. Well, you wear the joggers. He wears like the dress pants. I wear the oh. I wear the dress pants every once in a while. Mm. But they they look like nice dress pants, and they're they're flexible and stretchy. So, but I'll have to ask him. I didn't know if Taylor shaves his legs or not. I will ask him. That's going to be a conversation I'm going to walk into his office tomorrow and have with him immediately. <laughs> Absolutely immediately. Very important medium. Yes. Yeah. Close the door. Just, we got to, we got to figure this out. Um, 
So when um, the BOI, then BOI uh, came down, they actually, after they finished their two-year investigation, the biggest thing they found among a bunch of other things was that this William Hale dude was basically uh, just a mob boss. And he had a nephew named Ernest Burkhart. And what he did is he had Ernest marry um, a member of the Osage tribe named Molly Kyle, who was related to Anna Brown, and who I think and I believe would be the rightful heir to her head rights if and when she passed. So Hale is basically the one who arranged through Ernest all of these murders of Molly's sisters. So Rita Smith, her brother-in-law, who I think was Charles, Charles Whitehorn, her mother, Anna Smith, and her cousin, Henry Rowan. So they were basically just, you know, picking and choosing who they wanted to kill at some point. And Ernest was kind of running this. And when you're talking about like this big plan, I mean, to have your nephew marry somebody just specifically so you can murder and, and capture all these head rights. Uh, Rita Smith, I know, you know, she was the one that was killed by the bomb. Um, I mean, that was so you know, strategic that they, they actually needed Rita and her husband to die at the same time to trigger a simultaneous death clause. I mean, like the amount of planning that went into this. Oh, really? I didn't is, know that. It's insane. Because if they didn't, then it would have like... The way that the inheritance was going to work, like they needed to like have them die at the same time. Wow. Well, yeah. hence the bomb, I guess. Yeah. But I had no idea. So it was very premeditated and very... Um, planned out and um when you watch if if you watch the movie but if you watch the movie so william hale is played by spoiler alert if you don't want to know what happened or who the characters were i guess um stop now uh but what? you're gonna hear their name in the movie well i know but like right immediately but yeah i don't know you have, you have to say spoiler alert with stuff today otherwise people just come after you so i somebody I ruined Breaking Bad for somebody like a year ago. And I was like, that ended in like 2012. I was like, you can't tell me. If you haven't gotten to it now, it's your fault. Fair. Yeah. I haven't gotten to it, so please don't remember okay. <laughs> Are you going to get to it, though, is my question. It's on it's, my list. It's up there with like The Wire is something I've been told a million times I've been watched. Yeah. Yeah. I stopped Breaking Bad at the end of season three. And I won't say why, because it would be a you know spoiler for you. Okay. Quitter. It's one yeah. of my favorite characters. Just, oh, stop. I cried. Oh, my couldn't God. Couldn't watch it. Couldn't go on. Bumper? No. I know. I'm just kidding. He doesn't die. I don't think so. Maybe. Now I can't even remember his name. I think it was like Gail. One of your... It was the you one that danced. You just said you weren't going oh. to spoil it. Wah, wah. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay, so spoiler alert. Robert De Niro plays William Hale. Leonardo DiCaprio plays uh, Ernest Burkhart. So um, now you know exactly who are the, the plotters in the whole series and situation. Now, when they all passed away, Ernest and Molly inherited all the head rights. So it, I think it was north of six at this point, which means about $4.2 million per year. Now, in addition to running this um, mob ring and like murder ring, if you will, Hale also took out a bunch of insurance policies on the Smith family and some other investments that would pay out directly to him. And during this time, all while this was going on, Ernest tried to poison Molly, um, but she was 
she kind of figured something was fishy and actually never drank the alcohol. And I believe I read it was because she went to like a, a priest who was like, don't drink any alcohol or anything like that. Not because of alcohol is bad, but just because they had heard of a bunch of other people dying from quote, alcohol poisoning. Eventually the FBI and, or the BOI, whatever you want to call it, found out and charged Hale, uh, a bunch of his accomplices and Ernest Burkhart with murders. And so um, one of the things that came up in 1926 when they had both state and federal trials was this guy named John Ramsey. And he was the one who confessed to killing Rowan, which kind of knocked over a domino, which led to William and Ernest kind of, um, you know, coming under indictment by the federal and the state governments. And the trials were crazy. And again, the advantage of doing this is I can pass the crazy and confusing stuff off to other people. And so they had both state and federal trials, and I'm going to pass it off to Kate to try, Kate Narania to try to explain <laughs> what actually happened around this time. And if you can't like, and I, I'm going to give the caveat if I haven't already that like, this is super confusing, way crazy procedural stuff that happened in like 1926. And if you've ever read an opinion in 1926, it's so hard to read. It's, it's and very... you guys probably deal with it all the time. Yeah. yeah. It's like one long paragraph with words that I don't even know exist. And then you can't search any of them. They don't have, um, you know, head notes or anything like that. It's so difficult to figure out what the, the judges were actually trying to say. Well, and the problem too is, like you said, there were so many procedural hoops that there are so many cases that, that are connected to this. So trying to find like the order that everything happened. I mean, it's not, it's not as easy. Like you don't get to see the docket the way that, you know, we can with cases now. So, you know, trying to like unravel what happened is pretty tough. Um, <laughs> and I know you, you really tried, but, uh, you I know, I try, I just put change of venue, Kate, tell me what this means. So, yeah. So a change of venue, Usually that just involves like, you know, there's some sort of prejudice, you, you want to move it to another forum. Um, but what was really happening here was there was an issue of jurisdiction and whether or not the federal court had jurisdiction over the case. Um, obviously, you know, William Hale, who had been paying off the, uh, the state government, wanted this to be a state trial. Um, and so going back to the, the Osage Allotment Act and going back to the fact that, you know, these were allotments, you know, held in trust, they were restricted from sale for, for a period of years. Um, there was an issue of whether or not the federal government had jurisdiction over the, where the, the murder happened. Um, federal jurisdiction, uh, the federal government has jurisdiction over uh, Indian country, they call it, um, and over criminal, you know, cases. Mm -hmm. And so they actually had to go to the United States Supreme Court on this issue of whether or not a restricted allotment um, was still considered Indian country or if it was considered the territory of the state. And they went through, you know, the issue of, it's still held in trust for that period of time until it can be transferred. So really it was only Indian country for that, you know, 25 years or until, until it became transferable and alienable. 
Um, but they did, you know, fall on the side that, you know, there, there was jurisdiction and that it could be tried in federal court. Oh, okay. And I think you had mentioned before that, like, even on, because this is so complicated, even today on like the U.S. government's website, there's like a chart that says what is and isn't like yeah attributable or, or like which what the government does or does not have jurisdiction over. Yeah, the Department of Justice has a chart to try to, you know, kind of like cheat sheet on is is this tribal jurisdiction or is this federal jurisdiction? So, you know, not only, I mean, in this case, you had an issue between whether or not the state was going to handle it or the federal government was going to handle it. But you also have the issue of, you know, can it go to the tribal courts? And I mean, Julie, you might know a little bit about more about this, but my understanding was there was, and, and it changes so often. It changes, you know, with, with different administrations and different cases come out that you never know, you know, where it falls. You could find a case that says one thing and then it's like, oh, but apparently, you know, then Congress preempted it with this law. Um, so that's why you need these cheat sheets because, I mean, I think the tribal, tribal courts have civil jurisdiction over all of their members and they have civil jurisdiction over most of what happens on their reservation, um, but they do not have criminal, and they have criminal jurisdiction over their members when you know the victim is also one of their members. Um, but I know there's limits and exceptions to you know what sort of penalties they can impose, you know what sort of sentencing you know they can do, um, and then there's they don't generally have criminal jurisdiction when there's a non-Indian who commits a crime on an Indian reservation. Um, going along with that, so they have no authority over federal crimes. What they do have authority over is when, if it is a domestic partner or a dating partner or a spouse who has committed abuse against a native woman, um, but there are there are a lot of issues with that. So first, it ha there has to be a relationship between the defendant and the plaintiff. So the uh, the sexual assault person, the, the I'm just going to say man and woman, I apologize, but I'm going to do that. But if the man is non-native and the woman is native um, and it's a first date and it's a hookup and he ends up sexually assaulting her, that is not part of the jurisdiction of the tribe. There has to be either a protective order that was violated, an existing protective order, or there has to be a relationship where that that man either lives with the woman on the reservation or works on the reservation and has ties to him. There has to be like a relationship between the two. Okay. So a stranger raping a stranger on the reservation is not something that the tribe has any jurisdiction over. Um, and women on the reservation are raped at a rate three times higher than women in the United States. Um, and they are 10 times more likely to have um, sexual assault of some kind happen to them in their lifetime. So the, the women and girls that were killed in the Osage uh, massacres or mm -hmm. murders or however you want to define it, um, that, that epidemic of women and girls and violence against women and girls on reservations is something that has just skyrocketed. And the disproportionate amount of... Um, resources and um, help for them has just gotten massively larger. And so that's probably one of the reasons why when the 
your your boss that you said at like the beginning of how you got into it when he said these people need help that was probably one of the things because i had i had no idea about all that and that's just that sounds absolutely terrible and especially when they're in a in a situation where they as individuals might not even know what their rights are or what court they're going to be in is on top of everything else that they've got to be dealing with it's got to be extremely frustrating but to be able to turn to somebody who can actually at least help them with one aspect has got to be at least somewhat comforting. I don't know. I might, I might be speaking out of turn there. The majority of um, assaults that happen on the reservation go unreported because so often there is no one that responds. And when you have these reservations, these huge reservations mm -hmm. where maybe four or five FBI agents are assigned to the entire reservation, you're talking about days before somebody comes in to investigate it. And by that time, the scene is corrupted, mm -hmm. the you know, witnesses are gone. There, it, there's, there, are good, there are good reasons why women don't report it at all. And I think you know, the, that whole exception to give the tribal court jurisdiction over these like domestic violence and sexual assault cases, that's pretty new too, right? Like, wasn't that 2013 or something? And, and it still doesn't go far enough. Yeah. The Violence Against Women Act allowed a lot of that and it does it doesn't go far enough and when the tribes do have uh jurisdiction they can only uh prosecute someone and put them in jail for up to three years so mm. a lot of times they err toward having the prosecutions go through federal court in the hopes that someone who assaults someone rapes someone or murders someone is going to go to jail for longer than three years and uh, i think that just to wrap up on the difference between tribal court superior court and federal court I guess the answer is it depends because there's a lot of exceptions to when tribal courts will have jurisdiction and when the state will have jurisdiction. I know that in Arizona, typically um, it's all federal, like the state won't get involved. It's usually just uh, the federal uh, federal courts. Is that right, Julia? That's right, except for the Castro Huerta decision that just came out gives Arizona the right to start policing the reservation when the victim is non-native. Was that Kavanaugh? That that, yes, that opinion? Yeah, it's yeah. really wonderful, horribly. Yeah. Sorry, you can edit that out. <laughs> no, I'm not going to edit that out. Even I think even, even if I edit out the last part, you can probably hear it in your voice with the uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, we all know he likes to drink beer and do things in college. So um, that part I will probably edit out. Maybe, maybe not. We'll keep it in. Um, so. Uh, after all that kind of stuff, basically in, in 1926, so Ernest, he was obviously a integral part of this whole scheme, but apparently some part of guilt got him. And in 1926, he actually pled guilty and provided the, the, the state and the federal government with a, a story of the murders in its full capacity and basically the full scope of the plan that William Hale had laid out. And so um, eventually both him and um, William Hale went to jail and they got life as their sentence. I was just going to say, I don't think Ernest knew the full scope of it because apparently William Hale had plans to, to off Ernest at the end of it all and take everything for himself. So wait, really? I didn't yeah, know. Yeah. Where'd, where'd you read that? The internet. Okay. Well, and which is always <laughs> right, but that, I mean, it makes sense. Obviously he probably wasn't going to do all this greedy stuff just so his, nephew uh could make all this money mm -hmm. i mean probably a pretty evil dude who just liked to murder a bunch of people they ended up getting life and i, I think for it's 
it is not the end of this story by um, any stretch of the imagination, but for the, the group that we're focusing on, that's once they got sentenced, that was kind of the end, end of this Osage terror. And the reason I say terror is because at least from what we know, after this happened and after they got sentenced, I believe the FBI actually closed like closed the file. Um, now, since they've kind of opened it up and looked back, but but after William Hale and Ernest got sentenced, they closed the file and they had found that at least 28 Osage members were killed during this time of guardianship. Um, but it was dubbed the Reign of Tower. But you got it. There it is. Reign of Terror. The Tower of Terror. The Tower of Terror. That's that's exactly where that Freudian slip came from. The Tower of Terror. So it was dubbed the Reign of Terror. And I think from some of the research that I've done, they found out it was a lot more than 28, maybe even up to 60. And some people have said it was probably up to 100, 100 to 120 members of the Osage tribe who were killed, not just by William Hale and this whole like plan and scheme, but a bunch of the other guardians who saw the same thing that he saw, which is if we take out one, we can then have two head rights. And if we take out two, then we can have four. And it was basically just a bunch of people getting greedy. And it wasn't even just the murders. I think, Julie, you'd mentioned that like, if they sold a member of the Osage tribe a car, they would sell it to them for like three times the price and basically just pocket the rest of it. Yep. So, so during this time, it was just a bunch of people, including the US government, not surprisingly, that was just taking advantage of these people who literally did nothing wrong except for pick a piece of land that ended up having oil on it. Um, I think the U.S. government at least probably saw, based on the findings of the FBI, that they should probably change the laws that they put into place that led to all of this because the catalyst literally was the the guardianship issue. If If the guardians couldn't come in and have the right to the um, head rights, none of this would have happened. Well, if they hadn't kicked them off their land in Kansas, none of this would have happened. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is very true. So the two catalysts, right? Or And probably a bunch of other decisions. Yeah. And as we mentioned before, if they hadn't tried to like put them on a reservation, like put all the Indians on a reservation then take them off the reservation, like literally it's always the government trying to make decisions for what's best for the government with the cloak of we're doing what's best for the people on the uh, uh, on the native, uh, the Native Americans. So you already know so much about tribal law. Well, I mean, that's a pretty easy one to like come like understand, which is the government generally takes advantage of them. So, <clears throat> um, so they change the U.S. government decides in 1925 to change the laws and said that you cannot inherit head rights from an Osage member unless more than half of your ancestry was Native American. Um, but by this time, the damage had been done and actually many of the head rights had been transferred out and couldn't come back in. And so we're going to fast forward a little bit. Um, before we do, one little thing that I want to mention about how probably white people took advantage of and did not suffer any consequences is eventually, despite killing probably dozens of Osage members, um, Ernest got paroled in 1937, so he was only in jail for 10 years. He ended up going back in because he tried to steal more stuff from Osage tribe members. Um, but then Hale, William Hale, got paroled in 1947, so he was in jail for 20 years, and then he died in, like, 1984. In Phoenix, uh, Arizona. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. 
learned that from the internet too. Okay. <laughs> so just, you know, no biggie, just a mass murderer, probably just only going to jail for 20 years and then just getting paroled. So, and we, now we know we had a mass murderer, um, roaming the streets of Phoenix until like 1984. But if you fast forward kind of, uh, you know, 1990s, early 2000s, this stuff came to light. Books were opened up. People kind of started to learn about this. As we mentioned, it was kind of swept under the rug. But there was a there was a suit against the U.S. government regarding the transparency because these headrights that were transferred out of the Osage tribe, I believe the tribe, I could be wrong there, but I believe the tribe is actually the one who wanted to figure out where these were and where these were distributed so that they could actually see if, you know, members of the tribe or people who were descendants actually had had the specific right. Um, and so I think I asked Arania to kind of look into that suit against the U.S. government regarding the transparency for these head rights. Yeah, so in, I believe it was 2015, a federal judge ordered um, an accounting to the Osage uh, head right holders in, Fletcher, in a case that's known as the Fletcher case. And... Essentially, he said that they had to go back to 2002 and provide an accounting up to 2015 of everything, everything. Um, and it was pretty specific. I think it, there were like seven things that they had to include. I don't want to go over all of them. Um, but they, for example, they had to state the date and the dollar amount of each receipt and distribution made. Um, they had to identify the trust where the money was coming from. Um, and this was essentially a historic decision, I think, because before then, they really had no accounting of what, what money was being paid, where it was coming from. Uh, so, yeah, finally, someone did something about it in 2015. And and I think the, the findings after that decision came out, they found out that about a quarter, so like the, almost 25% of the head rights were still owned in 2002 by non-Osage tribe members. That's a, I mean, it's a, it's a quarter that basically you know, left the tribe and <laughs> I, the, the oil money kind of dried up a little bit. It wasn't as lucrative as it was back in the 1920s and 1930s. I think they kind of tapped the wells as much as they could, but it was still a lot of money that was flowing to some of these, um, some of these individuals. And um, for those who don't actually know like what an accounting is, it is a degree that you can get in college, which I have, I know nothing about, which is why I always hire somebody to do all my taxes. But from a legal perspective, Kate, what would, what's like kind of an accounting? Well, so from a legal perspective, you've got, in this case, you've got the United States who's acting as the trustee for, for these Osage members that have their head rights. And if you're going to be taking on that role where you're managing somebody else's money, you owe them a fiduciary responsibility. You have to, you know, for lack of a better term, you have to account for it. So you, you can't just, you know, it's not this case where you just say, well, trust me, like I know what's best for you. You have a duty. If sometimes it's triggered by, you know, a demand um, where you can make a demand if you're, you know, say you're a minority member of a company, um, and, you know, you can make that demand on the company to, to account for, for certain things and to show you, you know, what's going on with the finances. Um, and in this case, you know, the United States owed them as their fiduciary, owed them the responsibility to say, here's what we've been doing with your money. You know, instead, it was 
you know, what, a hundred years of them, you know, just doing whatever they wanted with it and never, never really showing them what, what, what was happening with their own money. They were basically cutting checks and not, and did not disclose who they were cutting, cutting checks to and for what amount. Yeah. And, and that's all the lawsuit was about is they're like, Hey, by the way, can we know who and, you're cutting checks to and for how much? And, and how much they're taking in. I mean, like, you know, Ronnie, you were saying, you know, what kind of deals were they making, you know? Were they taking some sort of, you know, half of it and just putting half of it in, in, you know, to, to the Osage members? It's, it's really hard to know. And that's why, you know, when you, when you take on that role as a trustee, you have, you have these responsibilities. And I mean, I know that in the, I think it was the 2002 case. I mean, every time the United States is held responsible or, or try to hold the United States responsible, um, as much as they, they take on that protectionist role and they love to, to, you know, say all those things about, you know, how their lofty goals of, of, you know, elevating and protecting, you know, the Native American people, whenever there's a lawsuit against the United States, they're always looking for loopholes or saying, we don't owe you a trust responsibility for that. We don't owe you a duty to protect those rights or, you know, we just have a duty to not harm you, but we really don't have a duty to act actively, you know, like advocate for you. So, I mean, it's, it's just kind of funny to see how, you know, they're, they're always claiming to be, you know, the, the protectors and really they're always looking for like the escape hatch. As I think most of this podcast has demonstrated. Yeah, and I, I was just going to mention that it's funny that you say that, Kate, because I actually think that the U.S. tribe claiming in the Fletcher case that the Osage tribe couldn't request an accountant because they had been part of the settlement, of a settlement that happened in 2011. They being who? Um, the tribe. Okay. Yeah, so they're basically saying that they had waived all, all the rights that they had and that they didn't have to provide an account of anything. And the court disagreed with that. And they essentially said, no, you have to give them an accounting. So the U.S. government was like, the U.S. government made the argument that the Osage tribe was not a party to a settlement that the U.S. government made on behalf of the Osage tribe. And so they weren't at... Um, In 2011. So they didn't have any right to... Yeah. <laughs> and like Kate said, it's very common for that to happen. And there's always, I mean, in these cases, like, you know, statutes of limitations and you know, privity where, you know, it, you've got this difficulty where the United States is the trustee for every federally recognized tribe. Um, so, you know, if the United States is, is a party to a case, a tribe could come out later and say, hey, well, we weren't part of this. We didn't know about this. We have these claims. And they say, no, 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 you know, we, we're in privity with you. So, you know, we, we were able to basically relinquish your claim or, you know, like you've lost the opportunity because we, we settled with these people. And, you know, clearly the U.S. government has a great, you know, track record of acting in the best interest of these tribes all the time. I know this is an audio medium, but if you couldn't hear the sarcasm in my voice, there was a lot of it. Um, so after they ended up getting that accounting, basically what they found out, now the allegation was that the U.S. government through these allocations that they didn't want to disclose had basically absconded with and taken $2.5 billion over the course of, you know, 80 to hundred years of the Osage tribe money. And when they actually won the lawsuit, they had to release the list and there was uh, 68 entities, not Osage related, that 
um, held and represented 37 head rights between them. So you can go look up the list. It's, it's pretty interesting. You can get way down the list and see there's some random names, there's some random entities, but just a few kind of weird ones. And these are the top 10. So the Board of Regents of the University of Texas owned 2.75 head rights. And again, a lot of these entities said, oh, we had no idea. Like, we don't know how that actually happened or how we actually got that. But clearly somebody was receiving the checks and cashing them. Um, the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church uh, owned 2.5. The Sabine Royalty Trust owned 2.32. The Oklahoma Historical Society, which kind of makes sense, maybe, owned 2.3. Then you have the Frank Phillips Foundation, the University of Oklahoma, another Roman Catholic diocese owned two, 1.7 and 1.5 res respectively. And then you've got like a Baptist church in Oklahoma that owned one of the head rights. And so just entities that probably had, probably weren't even created, most of them, when this whole issue arose and ones that probably have nothing to do with the Osage tribe, just had these head rights and were collecting a bunch of money for, for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. I just wonder if they, you know, got these through, you know, charitable donations and named a wing after, you know, the person who stole the head rights from the Osage. Yeah, it's probably a, some sort of guardian who they have a statute outside of their, uh, you know, college after, I'm sure. I've actually heard that some of the Osage, when they died left some of these two different uh organizations that did uh, like nonprofits. yeah I, I that's one of the things that i read was that some of this might have been from osage that like were catholic and wanted to give the diocese something that i totally understand that but if you're gonna be like the catholic church you should probably know that not just be like oh i don't know how we got this so mm -hmm. um but overall, like if you look at that, again, if we're talking about today's dollars, you're talking about $25.9 per year at its peak, right? It, it kind of tailed off a little bit, but it's a lot of money that should be going to Osage tribal members that was probably taken from them just basically because of the U.S. government and non-Osage members at the times, um, you know, taking advantage of all those people. So I don't know. This was just... It was a it was a timely story, something I knew nothing about, um, that I got prompted on by the release of this movie. Um, we fortunately have three uh, lovely attorneys here who are knowledgeable and smart, and have way more understanding of this. I think, as we can all understand from listening to this complicated area of law, um, so. I would encourage you to go see the movie. Um, I think one of the things that I heard Scorsese when he got into, he heard this idea and he wanted to focus on what the book focused on, which was like the Bureau of Investigation and the creation of the FBI, because I think that's kind of the emphasis for the book. But um, one of the interviews that I heard is he said when he started to interview the, the members of the Osage tribe, he understood that the focus should be on the, the tribe. So he, he changed the focus of the movie. So it'll probably differ quite a bit from the book in terms of focus and kind of focus on the members of the Osage tribe and, and how they were, I mean, wronged is an understatement because they were all killed, but also taken advantage of. So I would encourage you to go see the movie. Um, and if you ever have any questions about, you know, 
Indian law, Native Americans, anything like that. We've got uh, a bunch of knowledgeable people here who, as Julie said at the um, beginning of the podcast, have kind of dedicated their practice to helping people who definitely need help. So I think with that, um, until next time, I'm Eric Boats, and thanks for listening to Speakeasy Sessions. Thank you.